It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Wednesday, September 30, 2020. On today's episode, Grace Powell from the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts is here with an exhibit talk. She is going to be speaking about Paris in the day of post-expressionism. This really is quite an interesting exhibition and it comes from a private collection. Now, you know, when you have a private collection, it's the taste of the collector that decides what paintings he's going to collect. Um, when you go to the museum, you will have um, a choice that has been made according to the artistic periods and filling in the gaps. But a private collection is different and you will see that in my presentation as well as when you go to the exhibit. Um, what's interesting about this uh, exhibition is that it really does cover works from many different artistic periods in the Impressionism through Post-Impressionism and beyond that. Um, so there really is an art historical perspective and that's actually the one that I'm going to be using, although the exhibition itself isn't quite set up in exactly the same way. And um, really this, um, the main part of Signac with the independence covers the period of the Belle Epoque, which was from 1871 to 1914. And I will also be covering the social context because many of the artists were very involved in what was really quite a turbulent time. So let's just do a quick um, look at what had happened to Western art. Of course, it started, if you like, in the medieval period where uh, it was religious. It was very flat and it was often gold because at that time it was important to show the celestial, not our world, but the celestial world. Then in the center you see um, a painting by Raphael, the School of Athens, and all of a sudden when you look at that painting you can see what's become important is to show our world, the world with spatial perspective. And then on your right-hand side, you see a historical, really classical uh, painting, which is the kind of painting that was accepted by the Salon in Paris. Now, at this time, you need to remember that if you wanted to see paintings, there weren't art galleries like there are today where you can go and have a look at the paintings. The only way that an artist could get his painting shown was to be accepted by the jury at the Salon. So, Impressionism. In 1874, the Impressionist painters who had not been accepted by the Salon, in other words, they had no place to show their paintings, decided that they really needed to have a venue. And so they opened what was called the Salon des Refusés. And a journalist who went along to this exhibition 
looked at this painting called Impression Sunrise by Monet and wrote an article saying, well, these aren't artists, all they do are impressions. And if you think back to the painting that we looked at before in terms of what the Salon wanted, they wanted a painting that today would look like a photograph. And so it was Impressionism who in which was the movement, the artistic movement that actually started to break the Salon's grip on artists with the kind of works that they were able to display. Now in the exhibition, there is this wonderful painting by Monet called Water Lilies, and you, you get a sense of a later uh, Impressionist painting by Monet from 1914, uh, where you get the uh, not only the water lilies on the water, but you begin to get some of the trees that are reflected into the water. So in terms of now looking from an art histor historical point of view at post-impressionism, um, the Society of Independence, in fact, followed on from the Impressionists in 1884. They had their first exhibition. And what's to notice with them is that I have no end date. I've only got a beginning date. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, Neo-Impressionism, also called pointillism, was science-based. And Seurat and Signac are the painters who are the best known in this particular category. Another uh, group were the Nabi, and they were in fact in contrast to pointillism because they wanted to escape the science of how our optics perceive color. And they in fact moved away from what they considered to be the materialism that had come with the scientific movement. Valaton is a known as the independent maverick, and we'll be looking at some of his works. Then another movement was the symbolist movement, and Redon is the one who we most often think of when we think of symbolism. And in the exhibition, there are a lot of uh, works by Redon. And then the fourth, and we'll be looking uh, mainly at those two painters, but of course, this was a school of artists who really dealt with color, and color not necessarily exactly as we see it, but color being very bright and an expression also of how people were feeling. Then we'll look briefly at Cubism, and we'll also look at a few artists from abroad, Kandinsky and Feiniger, all of these people were in fact displaying their works at the Society of Independent Artists. So what was important about this particular movement? Well, the idea was that there would be no jury at all, which meant that any artist who had a painting that he wanted the public to see would be able to submit his painting and have it displayed. 
and notice that I've got the beginning date of 1884 and no end date because in fact, this society, this um, uh, exhibition space still continues today. Now, it was Seurat who in fact developed pointillism. And when you look at this painting by Signac, you'll be able to see how those little dots are placed one beside the other. Now, unfortunately, Seurat, who started the movement, lived a very short life. And so, although some of his works are very well known, it was really Signac who continued with the idea of pointillism. Now, when you look at these paintings in real life, unlike the screen, what you notice is an incredible luminosity that comes as a result of the way in which the dots are displayed. We're going to look at a couple of Signac's paintings. Here, you can see the dots are very clearly in the foreground, and you notice those color contrasts between uh, the, the sunlight and the four colors, which I think uh, at the moment are rather, rather relevant to our time in Montreal. Here you have another painting by uh, Signac. And what I'd like you to do is to look and see how he's actually done his dots. If you notice, the dots in the foreground are just little spots. And if you look at them a little bit more closely, you'll notice that they vertically are arranged. If you look further back and you look at the water, if you look at the water now, you'll see that the brush strokes are actually organized horizontally so that you get the effect of the movement of the water in a way that you don't with the terrace right in the foreground. And this was one of the way in which the pointillists would actually use these dots or these little brush strokes to in fact give you that sense of movement and a difference between the different um, images that they were painting. It's not very often that one actually gets to see the process that artists use in terms of their finished work. So in the exhibition, you have this really wonderful uh, opportunity to see this because on the left-hand side of your screen, you will see the sketch that uh, Signac did. And then on the right-hand side, you will see his finished work. And again, um, look at the way in which those little brush strokes have been shown. You'll notice in the foreground, again, they're organized vertically. And then when you come to the water, they're organized horizontally, which really gives you a sense of the movement of the water. And then further in the background, you'll notice the, uh, the mountains, uh, really they rocks jutting out um, beside the water. And again, what you'll notice is that there the brush strokes are also organized vertically. And that in contrast 
to the horizontal brush strokes of the water really emphasizes what is stable, what is permanent, and what is in motion. Another thing that I really like about exhibitions is one can know art movements and know the major artists. What you don't always know is how many other artists who are not perhaps so well known were in fact painting really wonderful paintings. And so here we have two views by Luce in London. Um, on your left-hand side, you can see a St. Paul's Cathedral dome as you look across the river. And on the right-hand side, of course, you see the Houses of Parliament. Again, you can notice the same comment that I've been making in terms of the way in which the brushstrokes have been done yeah, with the water, um, always horizontal to give you that sense of movement. And then once you move away from that, you have them organized vertically so that you get the sense of the stability and the permanence in contrast. Another artist that we don't necessarily know so well uh, is Van Reysenberg. And here, in fact, he paints Paul Signac on his boat. And I, again, I, I love the way in which he's actually organized his colors, because if you look at the scene in the background, you can see how he's taken um, the white and the blue and organized his brush strokes to really give you that sense of movement. And then if you look at Sinyak's hand on the boat and you look at the effect on the boat, you can see that in fact, he's painting either sunrise or sunset. And you really have a sense of Sinyak sitting there as the, with his hand on the tiller, very stable within the movement of the water behind him. Another uh, painting by Van Rijsselberg, and here you see a very typical kind of scene that you find in Flanders. In fact, in, um, in another presentation I did, there was somebody who came from this area and they made the comment about how typical this is of that flat area in Flanders. And again, if you look at the way that the brush strokes have been done, you can see that same effect in terms of the water that you really get a sense of the movement of the water and then the trees on either side of the canal. And notice how with the grass, again, you've got those vertical brush strokes that really help to give you the sense of the rise of the bank from the water up to where the row of trees are. Another painting by Van Rijsselberg, and uh, this one I felt that I needed to include because it's one of the paintings that is in fact used to promote this exhibition. And again, if you just look at the road, uh, notice the way the brush strokes are done in a vertical way so that you get a sense of being able to go up that hill and follow the path. And then you have the mill raised higher in 
what's really quite an iconic presentation of a cultural icon within Belgium at that particular time. Notice also how you have the sunlight uh, on the right-hand side, just on the other side of this iconic presentation of the mill. Now, on the screen, this looks a little bit kitschy. However, when you actually see the painting, you get this really incredible sense of this vibrant sunset and the effect that you get on the water when you have these very bright colors in the sky. And notice again how those dots have been done to really give you that movement in the water as the, the waves, the slight waves, move the water towards the shoreline. Uh, as I say, the, the painting, when you really see it, looks not kitschy at all. You just really get a sense of a very vibrant sunset. So we're going to leave the pointer lists behind and we are going to move on to the Nabi now. And the, the Nabi really wanted to escape from science and from the materialism that they felt had uh, overtaken the way in which people were perceiving their lives. Brittany was a favorite location and Brittany at that time was an area that was much less industrialized and really an area in which old traditions were still followed very closely. And we also talk about the, clo the cloisonné style that you see. So this is a painting by Cerusier and it celebrates um, a, a religious celebration within a village in Brittany. And Notice how they're decorating the town square for this particular um, traditional uh, holiday. And when we talk about the cloisonné style, if you look at the woman with the red apron, you'll get an idea of what I'm talking about. Notice how you have a red dress and then clearly defined without any blending of colors, you have her apron. And then if you look at her face, you will see that it's contrasted to the cap she's wearing and the collar she's wearing. In other words, there are no blended colors. They just have definitely defined colors side by side. And often what you'll have is even a line that actually divides the two colors. And that's what I mean by the cloisonné style. Here you have um, another artist who is well known as um, a strong contributor to the Nabi, Maurice Denis. And what you have here is a return to the age of chivalry, to, the, to what's called the pre-Raphaelite time. In other words, before the Renaissance. And Again, what you have is this cloisonné style. And notice how you almost have a mixture of different ages because there you see on the water, 
somebody moving them off the pontoon. And yet you see the three women sitting in the foreground. And again, notice there's a little bit of ambiguity here because you have the lily, which represents Mary. And yet you also have the apples, which represents Eve. So you have a little bit of a contrast between the purity and the uh, sin. But what you have also is, of course, this blend between the pre-Raphaelite, in other words, the age of chivalry, the medieval time, together with some of the biblical um, symbolism. And I think in this painting um, from 1891 by Maurice Denis, you really get a sense of the appeal to the, almost the magical, to the not quite expressed, to the completely antithesis of materialism. You have these women picking anemones with a path running through the woods. There's a mysteriousness about this painting, a romanticism. And I think that this painting really demonstrates very well the difference and the different perception that the Nabi artists were trying to create as compared to what we saw when we were looking at the pointillist paintings, who were painting scenes from everyday life. Another painting from Maurice Denis, Catholic Mystery. And you can see uh, there's Mary again with the lilies that we uh, talked about before, and very elongated figures um, going back to the idea of the medieval period and the pre-Raphaelite. Again, here I think you get the idea of uh, the cloisonné uh, technique used very clearly in looking at, for example, look at, look at the dogs. Notice how you really have one color and then you have it outlined in black to completely separate it from the background that's there. Notice also dresses are also outlined in black so that you get this very clear contrast between um, the different colors and the different images that are being portrayed. And uh, Ramson is again referring back to the uh, pre-Raphaelite, to the age of chivalry and a somewhat mysterious scene, very antithetical to the scientific materialism that the Nabi were opposing in their artworks. Ruya, um, also a Nabi, and here uh, you notice the cook who is looking directly at us, and as she holds the spoon about to uh, test um, uh, what her cooking, if her cooking has been spiced correctly. Notice again how much you see that cloisonné style, but also look at those perspectives. Look, for example, at the floor and notice how when you're looking at the floor, you're actually 
not at the same angle as you're looking at when you look at the cook. You're at a much higher angle. And the same applies to um, the checkered cloth that is there, that it's very difficult really to decipher exactly what that is. And so this idea of mixing the different perspectives um, was also one of the modern ideas that had come in um, into the post-impressionist period, where you didn't simply follow the Renaissance idea of perspective from one point of view. The next movement that we're going to look at, and um, I, I want to just remind you again, what we are doing is looking at different paintings that are in the exhibition, and I've classified them within these different movements, because as you go through the exhibition, you really have a chance to see the different movements that are presented. And then what's fun is to look at them and say, okay, now uh, this particular artist, what category uh, does he fit into? And here you have the very bright colors of the forks and you have Fleming who uh, paints another artist from uh, the same uh, group of artists, uh, Derain. And you can notice the colors that he's used, the very, very vibrant colors that are, again, not blended, but simply placed side by side. Um, and then you see Frieze, in which he does the seaside at Cassis. And notice how those mountains you uh, are, are done in this very, very vibrant yellow color, contrasted to the blue of the water that you're looking at um, in the center part of the painting. Um, and then, of course, he's also added the red color. So with the fourths, and uh, the question would be, why are they called the fourths? Well, in an exhibition of various of the Forbes paintings, again, an art critic went and entered the room where the Forbes were displayed. And his comment was, the paintings here are simply fourth, which is the French word for wild animals. And so the idea that this uh, critic had was that the colors were completely wild. And you can see, certainly, I think when you look at the Flamink uh, painting, uh, the kind of comment that he was making and why he made that comment. We're now going to look at uh, Cubism. And um, in Cubism, um, there is this uh, wonderful still life by Picasso. It's a sketch. Um, if you go onto the internet, you'll actually be able to see the completed painting, which is not in the, uh, in the art exhibition. But it's really interesting to even look at this sketch and then to decipher where exactly the still life is, where exactly the bottle uh, of Mark is as compared to some of the other elements that have been portrayed. And 
of course, what cubism does is it gives you different perspectives that you cannot see at the same moment. Uh, there's a painting, in fact, uh, in the permanent collection at the museum uh, by Picasso of um, uh, a painting of a portrait where you could see exactly how cubism is done because he has shown the face looking at you in which you have the profile and the forward look at exactly the same time. And you know, of course, you can't see a profile plus the person looking straight at you. And that's really what cubism is doing. It's giving you those different perspectives. So we also, in the exhibition, have futurism. So uh, what is futurism? Futurism, the idea, and it was very largely an Italian movement. And if you look at this painting by Severini, uh, in which he says C equals dancer, now trying to decipher exactly the C and the dancer is very difficult. But what they're trying to convey is the sense of movement, this dynamism that was very much there within the industrialization that was taking place with the machines that were moving, had very fast moving parts. And the idea of society being in fast movement. And so with the futurist, this is what they're doing. And with Severini, he also combines this these very bright colors that we saw with the forms. We're now going to talk a little bit about Valaton. And uh, this is, it's not a very big painting, but I really like this painting. And I think what's really interesting in it is when you look at this Valaton painting, you can almost see the way in which art was going to develop in terms of color field painting, where you have stripes and lines separated from each other, dealing simply with color, dealing less with the figurative and more with the exploration of how we perceive color. Now, Valentin, of course, is painting here in 1911. This is well ahead of the color field painting. But when I look at this painting, not only do I get a sense of peace and quiet, but I also get this glimmer of what in fact is to come. Beth Morissette, who also displayed her works at, with the Independent um, Artists Society. Now, as a woman at this time, it was extremely difficult to get your paintings into any exhibition. And Beth Morisot was in fact one of the exceptions. And when you look at her work here, you can see that she's painted a scene of not everyday life out in the streets uh, with the flanners, but she's painted an interior scene of 
a young girl holding a cat. And women, of course, were very limited at that time in terms of being able to be out in the way that the Impressionist artists were, for example. And so many of the scenes that are painted by uh, women artists are in fact interior scenes. But you can see that, that she's taken that um, non-photographic uh, requirement that the Salon had with very, very loose brush strokes. And she has her young woman looking directly at us as she holds what is perhaps the symbolic cat. We are now going to uh, talk about the symbolists and uh, Redon is shown in this particular scene, again with um, with really uh, an interesting painting because he calls it fertility and woman among flowers. Notice how around her head in the background, she has this, what looks almost a bit like a halo, almost looks like it could be some kind of an egg. If you also look um, at the blue that is displayed uh, with the flowers and this idea of fertility and womanhood and flowers uh, bringing together the different um, ideas that are just mixed up and put into the painting. And uh, this particular painting is not dated. You know, with Redon, also we very often look at paintings by that he's done in black and white. This is a particularly brightly colored painting, which is somewhat unusual for him, as is this one called Pegasus. And I really like this painting. Again, the uh, Pegasus, which is um, a mythological a figure from a classical uh, Greek mythology. And you have this figure contrasted to the mountain with the color, the blue color, so that in fact Pegasus, although he's not very clearly defined, never, nevertheless, because of the colors that Redon has used, he shows up very clearly with the background that has been painted. Again, with, with Redoma, it's really interesting seeing these very colorful paintings, which are very unusual um, in Redon's kind of work. This is much more the kind of work that you will find with him, this uh, smiling spider. And in the exhibition, there are very many uh, works by him done in black and white. And you understand why uh, with the symbolists, they're really not looking at the reality of our world. They're digging down into the subconscious, into our perceptions of what, how we see things and into the subconscious that at this point in time had already begun starting to have an influence in the way that people were experiencing their 
particular perceptions and their subconscious. Another woman artist who uh, was display who had her work displayed at the uh, Independent Artist Society is Laurence and it's an interesting work because look at the color palette that she's used. I mean, she's really used such a limited color palette with the uh, light blue, some white, and some shades of pink. And notice also how her face has been portrayed. It looks almost like a mask. And so, in a sense, you're looking at the influence that we know very well from uh, Picasso's painting, Les Demoiselles uh, d'Avignon. And you can see that influence of the, of the African masks that became part of the particular movement that uh, Picasso was using as he was exploring uh, Cubism. Um, another artist that uh, perhaps we don't know that well, Valta, uh, um, a woman with a fox stole. And notice again here in 1905. So it's, um, it's a pretty late painting for the pointillism that we see here. Um, and we know that uh, this woman was actually Valta's mistress. And there's some question as to whether the dating of 1905 is really a correct dating and whether perhaps it hadn't been done a little bit earlier. But again, you know, those comments that I've made before in terms of the brush strokes and how they're done at different angles to give you uh, certain impressions of movement and non-movement. Now, of course, there were also a number of foreign artists who were shown at the and Modigliani, as you see on the right hand, sorry, on the left hand side of your screen. Um, it's a somewhat unusual Modigliani, not unusual in terms of what the, um, the, the face, the portrait looks like, but in terms of how he's done the color here. But um, if you look at the way that the face has been portrayed, you would of course recognize it as a Modigliani. And then a wonderful painting by Feiniger. It's called Fin de Science. And what you have in the, in the background um, is the building that is very stable with vertical lines. And what you have in the, um, in the foreground are people leaving, rushing home from the city at the end of the day. And notice how of their movement of the people rushing home in the way in which he has bent the figures coming towards us. So it, uh, it really is a, a wonderful Feiniger painting. A painting by Kandinsky. Of course, uh, when one thinks of Kandinsky, one thinks rather of uh, abstract art. 
So this is an unusual painting from 1905. And notice how he's organized his colors. And you can almost, when you look at this painting, see how Kandinsky's later works came with his sense of color. Notice how the women are uh, placed on the red path. And notice then that building in the background with, in the middle ground, the roses or the, the different flowers that are actually on the trees there. And just when you look at the symmetry and the use of color, you can see how Kandinsky moved on later into doing abstract art in which color and line were so important. Dufay and uh, a wonderful painting of really very different and uh, one would think colors that just don't go together at all with, with the pink and the orange and the yellow and the mauve. But you, he's created with this scene that he's done a very colorful impression of what this woman from Martinique and what Martinique represented for him in terms of the bright colors that he found when he was there. A painting by Pierre Bonnard, not a very typical painting of his, but again, what I find interesting in this work, and it's a late one, it's uh, 1943, is the way in which you can see those, those bands of colors that have been portrayed in a way that color field painting was going to uh, become dominant at a later point in time. Now, notice that we are talking about 1943. During the um, First World War, there were no um, exhibitions um, by the Salon des Indépendants, but it resumed their, they resumed their exhibitions after the war. And as I said, it still continues today. The next topic that I want to talk about is the democratization of art. And we are going to be looking at the golden age of posters. And we'll be looking at how this became possible with the technological advances that had actually happened in printing. Then with the demo democratization, we'll be looking at woodcuts. And we'll also be looking at the social comments that were being made by the artists who were very involved with what was happening at the time. In the exhibition, there really is a, a wonderful room of all kinds of wonderful posters. And because of the uh, development in terms of the kind of colors that could be done on, uh, with printing, posters were used to advertise. And as you can see, starting on the left-hand side, um, you have a poster for Tosca for an opera. Then you have uh, a poster advertising biscuits, advertising beer, and 
another um, a poster and notice how Art Nouveau is being presented uh, in these particular posters with pictures of various women with their hair that could be taken to show that curvilinear line that was very much there within Art Nouveau. Um, again, another uh, poster advertising a show that was uh, done with um, uh, at the El Dorado and the Ambassadors with uh, Aristide Brouard. Um, and I guess these posters are really very, very well known. And there are four of them. I've just shown you two of them. Now, woodcuts. You can imagine, if you take a painting, there is only one painting that is done. It's unique in the world. But with a woodcut, what you do is you cut into the wood and then you can print many, many different prints, which because you're multiplying the work of the artist means that with the multiplication of the work of the artist, it means that you're able to make the artistic works available at a much reduced price, which means that people who would not be able to afford uh, a unique painting would be able to afford a print. And uh, you have these two uh, woodcuts by Valaton. Remember, we've met him before. And uh, if you look at the left-hand side, you have la paresse, in other words, laziness. And notice how he's used the figure of the woman and the cat, and then contrasted those just really outlines, the silhouette, to the heavily patterned bedspread that she's lying on. So you have this very... Um, clear contrast between the figures and the bedspread. And then if you look at Roger and Angelique, you see again this um, non-rational um, old legends and stories uh, romanticized that are being portrayed here. But again, uh, it really was uh, the democratization of art to make it possible for people to be able to have artists' uh, works that they would never have been able to afford to have the prints and be able to have them displayed in their own living areas. Again, within the printing technology that you could also print in color not only in the black and white. And uh, so we have a couple of uh, landscapes from Brittany. Um, again, an artist that I was not aware of before this exhibition. And again, uh, one that, because they were prints, would be able to be afforded. In terms of the social comment, um, I've indicated that the artists, that many of the artists were very socially engaged in what was really quite a turbulent time. And here you can see Picasso in uh, his work 
of the, um, the poverty, where in fact these two figures, you can see how emaciated they look and all they've been able to afford is a little bit to eat and of course something to drink. Uh, very often at that time, a time absinthe was a very common drink that was, uh, was used. And uh, this uh, Picasso in the uh, brilliant way in which he was able to convey what it was that he wanted to do really in very simple uh, lines and artistic imagery. Um, Luce, who we've met before, here we have a painting of steelworks. Um, remember, this was the time of industrialization, and he has shown the kind of work that um, was being done in the industrialized areas. And here you can see the bright, bright colors, and you get a sense of the heat that these workers have to deal with. Um, during their, um, in the way in which they earn their living. Um, I've mentioned already that this was in fact really quite a um, um, turbulent time. And here you see um, against uh, some uh, prints of the time of the turbulence that was there. And I'm going to finish off with this particular painting by Chagall. Um, the collector's comment is, this was a painting that his father had given him. Um, one of the very first paintings that his father had given him. And as he looked at this painting, um, he realized how important collecting was and that this really was something that, that he wanted to continue to do and to take this collection. And I think when you look at the Chagall painting with the two figures, when you look at the Chagall painting with these two figures beneath this tree, all very mysterious with uh, some of uh, Chagall's typical kind of peasant animals and the um, moon up in the right hand, the left hand side, you get a sense of the mysteriousness that was very much part of what Chagall did. I just want to comment finally that the exhibition continues until November 15th. Unfortunately, with the new restrictions from the government, the museum has been closed until October 28th. But do make a point of getting in to see the exhibition. Um, the museum, museum has timed entries. They follow the protocols for COVID very closely and don't miss the exhibition. It really is unique. And thank you. Hi, Grace. Uh, it's Angela. I have a question for you. Yes. What was your uh, process in choosing the artwork that you showed in your presentation? Yes. All right. Well, the, the first thing that I wanted to do was to form kind of a structure. So I structured it from an art historical perspective. 
And then having chosen to do that, I looked for certain of the paintings that I felt um, were the kind of paintings that when you go through the exhibition, you really notice them. But also I wanted to give an idea of the very wide variety of paintings that you will be able to uh, see and experience. So it was kind of a combination of uh, doing the presentation and linking it through to the exhibition. Thank you for that answer. I'm just waiting to see if anybody else has any questions. I don't see any so far. I'll give them a few more minutes. Yes. Uh, just hold on. It's Oh, I have a comment here from Shelly. She says, very well done presentation. Oh, thank you, Shelly. Oh, okay, I see some raised hands here. Hold on a second. Oh, and here we go. We have a few other. One from Melody says, do you have any more presentations like this to explain other artwork in the collection as this was so interesting? All right, are you talking about artworks within the permanent collection or artworks in this exhibition? Uh, I don't see. Okay, if I'm not getting an answer, uh, the, the quick answer is no, I don't, but yes, I can. Uh, she just wrote back, she said the permanent one. The, the permanent one. Um, so again, the answer is no, I don't, but yes, I can. Okay, I see some raised hands. I'm just gonna... Um, I have a question from oh, Carol Blank. I'll just ask her to unmute herself so she could ask you the question. Grace, are there any more Modigliani's in this exhibit? Sorry, I didn't hear the question. Are there more Modigliani's in the exhibit? Um, hmm. There aren't many, all right? I don't remember if this is the only one. This is the, this is the one that really catches your eye. So that's not a complete answer, but um, there aren't many. No. no. Thank you. Okay. Okay. I see one more. Uh, so Melody says, thanks. That would be wonderful for your more presentations. Thank you. Let me see if I have, oh, there's one. <laughs> Carol, go right ahead. Yes, and uh, uh, Grace, what about Kandinsky? Are there more by him? Um, no, there just aren't. Just that any, one? Uh, just that one, yes. Uh -huh. Okay. And, and again, it's, it's interesting because it's not the kind of painting that we associate with Kandinsky. Exactly. And there exactly. aren't any of his abstract works there. Okay, thanks. Okay. Okay. 
I don't see any more questions or um, chats. So uh, as a last thing, any last words or comments about the presentation or the museum? <laughs> oh. Grace? Uh, from me? Yes, from oh. you. Um, the, the only comment um, that I can make with, uh, with COVID, the uh, permanent collections have not been available. And we've, um, this particular exhibition, of course, is available. As I said, uh, you need to book your tickets and um, they are timed. And I, if, if all goes well and the museum reopens October 28th, I can tell you right now, there will be many, many people who will be trying to get in to see the exhibition before it leaves. So do make a point of trying to go in and book your tickets ahead of Well, that is today's episode of the Code St. Luke podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you to our guests and thank you to you for listening here today. The show is produced by me, Daryl Levine. The telephone broadcasting service and podcast was launched as a way to get content into your home during the pandemic period. As you know, we had to stop our events at the library and at Parks and Recreation. So we hope you're enjoying the podcast as a sort of a virtual way of getting the content to you so you can hear your favorite speakers at home. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Every rating and review helps others to find the show. Have a great day.